You know, the story is told, I don't know if you've heard this story, of a 14th century duke named Reynold III in what is now known as the country of Belgium. He was grossly overweight and was known as one who loved delicious food and desserts. He probably liked Oreo cookies too. Don't judge me. After a violent quarrel, Reynold's younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynold, but he didn't kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynold in the new Newkirk Castle and promised him that he could regain his title, his lands, as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows a door of near-normal size, and none were locked or barred. The problem was Reynolds' size. To regain his freedom, he needed to what? Yeah, where was Oprah back then with Weight Watchers? He needed to lose weight. Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of Reynolds' favorite foods and desserts, including Oreo cookies. And instead of dieting his way to freedom, Reynold ate his way into continued captivity that lasted, get this, 10 years. He literally could not fit through the door. When Edward was killed in battle, Reynold was finally released, but by that time his health was so ruined that within a year he died. It's a sad, true story of a man who was a prisoner of his own appetite, literally. And instead of choosing freedom, he chose what? Slavery. His love of food ruled his heart, his life, and eventually brought him to death. Well, sadly, this is true for many living today, isn't it? Many are prisoners of their own appetites. What we crave, what we pursue in this life, says a lot about what we love and ultimately put our hope and trust in. It's no different in Reynolds' day, it's no different in our day, and sadly it was no different in Jesus' day when he encountered a rich young ruler who, though rich, was actually quite poor. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verse 17, Mark chapter 10, 17, where we find the rich young ruler's encounter with Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As you turn there, let me just remind you of the context. Again, as I said two weeks ago about the book of Mark, what is the key verse? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a for many. So by this time, here in Mark chapter 10, Christ is already on his way, traveling from Judea, traveling down south toward Jerusalem, where he will celebrate the Passover and become the spotless lamb to be sacrificed on the cross. In fact, think about that. Christ didn't just go to celebrate Passover. He became our Passover by shedding his blood So in this chapter, there are a number of encounters with Christ that highlight what is necessary to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus results in entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So notice in 
verses 13 to 16, right before the encounter with the rich young ruler, Christ encounters children, children brought to him so that he might bless them. The disciples rebuke them, and then Christ rebukes the disciples. Notice in verse 15, Jesus makes a startling statement. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Startling. See, entrance into the kingdom of God is defined as a gift of God given to all who would follow Christ with the simple, undivided faith of a child. Acknowledging their helplessness, their dependence upon Christ. See, you can't earn it through good works. You can't earn it through human achievement. And on the heels of this encounter with these children who come to him, we meet a rich young ruler who will also be called to draw near to Christ, just like those little children did, to deny himself and to follow Jesus with simple childlike faith. But sadly, as we will see tonight, he wanted to follow Jesus on his own terms. So this evening, our, our encounter with Christ can really be broken up into five stages. And, and these stages are just following the conversation between Jesus and this rich young ruler. We're going to see the concern. We're going to see the challenge. We're going to see the contradiction, the command, and then fifthly, the conclusion. So let's start with the concern. Look in verse 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice Mark sets, sets it up for us. He says, as he was setting out on a journey, this is Jesus setting out on a journey. Journey is the Greek word for road or way. I think this is Mark's way of, of reminding us that Jesus is on a one-way road where... Where is he headed? The cross. So he's just blessed these children before him, and he's setting out on a journey. In fact, this phrase seems to indicate that this encounter took place almost immediately following Christ's encounter with the little children. So he's blessing the children, he's praying over them, and then he gets up and he sets off on his way. And notice what happens. A man ran up to him. Now, it's important for us to identify who this man is. It's interesting. Mark mentions neither his youth, like Matthew does in Matthew 19.20, nor his political status, like Luke does in Luke 18.18, 18, where he calls this man a ruler, probably of a local court or a synagogue. All three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them accredit him with extreme wealth. So when we read all three of these accounts, that's why we traditionally call him what? A rich, young ruler. Well, next we see what this man did, what he said. Notice, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher. Now, there's several things that this rich, young ruler did that would be absolutely shocking to the bystanders. First of all, Middle Eastern men didn't run in public. You know why? It's not that they couldn't run or didn't run. It's not that they didn't have Nikes back then. It's that they had long robes and they had to pull up their robes in order to run, exposing what? White spindly legs. 
Yeah, nobody wants to see that. Put those away. It was considered to be very undignified, almost shameful. Second, this exalted, rich, influential, religious men don't kneel to anyone but a superior. They're the ones who get knelt to. So to kneel was a sign of humble respect. And think about it. Who was he kneeling to? A man whom the religious institutions of that day wanted dead. How many times did they try to kill Jesus? They picked up stones to what? Not play catch. This rich young ruler is kneeling to Christ. Third, notice what he said to Jesus. He called him. I can just picture it. He's out of breath on his knees in the dirt and he calls out, good teacher. The Greek word for teacher was the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word rabbi. That's what John says in John 1.38. To call someone teacher was a normal sign of honor and respect. Teacher. Now to add the word good was not a phrase used by Jews to address a rabbi. In fact, according to Judaism, only God was good. So rabbis preferred not to be called good. Why? If God is good and a rabbi is good, what does that mean? I'm equal to God. Well, that's blasphemy. This was not a normal phrase to be used. We're going to see how Jesus picks up on this when we get to his response in verse 18. But I suspect he wasn't trying to flatter Jesus. I think he was truly coming to Jesus with the desire to receive an answer to his question. What is his question? What does it say? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In spite of all of his earthly accomplishments and religious achievements, he seems to know that he did not have eternal life. He did not have the confident hope of heaven. Now think about this with me. From an evangelistic standpoint, what do you think is about to happen with this rich young ruler? He is going to get saved. Hallelujah! Is this the South or what? I'm not feeling it. (laughs) Think about this. He he seems to be recognizing his right need. He is not right with God. He doesn't have eternal life. In fact, in John 14, 6, what did Jesus remind us? No one comes to the Father but through me. He knew he wasn't right with God the Father. He needed to get right with God the Father. He recognize, seems to be recognizing his right need. He, he seems to be coming to the right person. Again, in John 14, 6, who did Jesus say he was? Not a way. What? The way. The truth. The life. In fact, no one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. And he kneels to the right person. Thirdly, he seems to be publicly, boldly asking the right question. What must I do to be saved? When is the last time anyone has ever walked up to you, let alone ran up to you, to ask you, what must I do to be saved? When's the last time that's happened? These days it feels like we're running after them, begging them, I I just want a word, just listen to me. Will you at least hear the gospel? And door after door being slammed in our face. This is an amazing opportunity Here Jesus is standing at the plate 
And instead of facing a 150-mile-an-hour fastball with a wicked curve, I don't even know if that's possible, but it sounds really hard to hit, what is he facing? This gingerly tossed softball with a 10-foot arc. Jesus is looking at this thing, and he is about to hit it out of the park! That's the concern. What is the rich young ruler's concern? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's look at the challenge in verses 18 and 19. The challenge. Let me read this for us. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus begins by saying, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Again, we have to understand by this statement, Jesus is not saying that he's not the Christ, fully God, fully man. If that were true, he would be contradicting everything he had said previously. You can look at John 5, 17 to 18. Christ is claiming to be God. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, I have to wonder what was going through the disciples' head. They had seen encounter after encounter between people with Christ. They're like, "Uh, Jesus, uh, missed opportunity there. See, Jesus responds this way because he is a master evangelist. What he is doing, don't miss this, he is rebuking this young man's use of the word good. Here's the million-dollar question. Did he truly believe that Jesus was divinely good and therefore the only way to secure eternal life? Did he believe Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life? Implying what? What is his faith in? If you're good, if you're the way, I trust in you. Or was he simply coming to Jesus to find the one great deed that he could do To finally settle things with God once and for all. Meaning what? I am very good, but I'm not good enough. Jesus, what's the good thing? What's the good work that I can do so that I can be good? What is he trusting in? His own works. It's interesting to note in John 6, 28, a crowd came up to Jesus. They asked a very similar question, asking how to be saved. In verse 29, Jesus gives a very radically different answer. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is that? Straightforward. If you want to be saved, believe in me because God sent me. If you believe in me, then you believe in God. Therefore, you will have eternal life. That's straightforward. The question is, why did Jesus not repeat the same answer here? Well, Jesus' question was designed to awaken him to the spiritual reality of his own heart. Before Jesus could exhort this young man to believe in Christ as his Lord and Savior, he knew this man needed a wake-up call to the reality of his own sinfulness, regardless of how good he thought he was. This man was using good as a relative term. In other words, he, he was using good to compare himself to everyone else. Hey, Jesus, you're good. I'm good. They're probably not so good, but we're good. 
This is true, isn't it? Some of us are better than others. Just look around the room. Some of us are way worser. Remember, I make a living communicating. Some of us are very bad. You're like, yeah, like my little brother, like he keeps coming in my room and touching my stuff. I'm like, dude, get out of my room. Stop coming in. You are the worst. Rich young ruler could look around the crowd and compare all of his good deeds to everyone else. He could literally rank his goodness. I'm sure you've never done this. I have some experience in this. Not because I was good. I mean, those of you who know me are like, ah, no, you're a liar. I was the troublemaker. But growing up at Grace Community Church, I was the proverbial good kid. I mean, I was the one that they brought up in the chapel in front of all the kids on a Sunday night children's program. I'm up there praying in front of 110 kids. I mean, you could see my halo, wings fluttering out. Look how good Chris is. High school camp, going to learn about Jesus. My friends get in a fist fight in the middle of camp. Who's the one who breaks him up? We knew you were going to be a cop someday, breaking up fights. Hey, uh, why, why do you guys have a black guy? Oh, well, we fell into the door. No, they didn't. They got into a fight, and I broke it up. Most everybody thought I was good. But they didn't see the reality of my dark heart. They just saw what I wanted them to see. In fact, I think most everyone thought I was good. If, if you had compared me to most of my friends, you would have said, well, yeah, you are better than them. If we use everyone else around us as the standard, what will we always be able to find? Someone worse. Someone who's a bigger sinner than we are. Rich young ruler was no different based on his answer, which we're about to see. Jesus wants to take his eyes off of the horizontal plane of human comparison. He wants him to look up vertically to God's goodness. God alone is absolutely, perfectly good. How do we know this? God alone is holy. Holy? At least half of you are ready. Isaiah 6 3. What does that mean? His goodness is holy. His goodness is perfect. God never does anything bad or less than what is perfectly right. He is always good 100%. Jesus here in our text says, Who alone is good? God, implying what? You and I? Not good. In fact, we are called to praise God's goodness. Psalm 118.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is better. His loving kindness is everlasting. Why do we praise God? He is good. Therefore, we're urged to trust in the Lord to discover that He alone is good. Psalm 34.8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. What does it mean to taste and see that God is good? We experience the goodness of God 
all the time. Even when we don't know what we need, God gives it to us because he's a good God. Protecting us, providing for us, graciously loving us and forgiving us. And we experience his goodness so that when we encounter trouble, what do we run to? Who do we run to as a refuge? Him. He's our refuge. Is God your refuge? The good God, is he the one you run to? If we look around the room, knowing each other the way we do, we're simply judging a book by its cover. That's always fun. We could probably find other people worse than us. After all, it's better to use them as the standard of comparison, right? Well, we have better behaved, disciplined kids than they do. I mean, we're more disciplined than they are. We use our money better than them. In fact, we give more money to the church than they do. We serve more than they do. We don't dress like they do. We go to church more than they do. We don't drink or smoke like they do. We certainly don't watch R-rated movies like they do. We're a PG family. Because PG movies are so much better nowadays. Everybody knows that. We don't raise our voice like they do. We don't raise our voice like they do. <laughs> and for the other side, we aren't as legalistic as they are. Right? There's a couple of those in here. You know who you are. And so on the comparison goes. And we feel pretty good about ourselves, don't we? Till Jesus gently takes our head in his hands, and what does he do? Causes us to look up. God alone is good. In comparison to God's goodness, how do you and I rate? Gulp. Notice how Jesus does this by pointing him to the law. Verse 19, what does he do? You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He challenges him with what? The law. It's interesting to note, do not defraud. It's the only commandment in this list not found in the Ten Commandments. That's why it's not capitalized in most of our translations. Jesus probably added this because wealth is often used or gained, at least at the expense of the poor. The rich cheat, they trick, they defraud, they take advantage of the poor. Now, it's important for us to note, Jesus is not telling this rich young ruler that the way to be saved is to obey the law. If you want to be saved, just do the law. That's not what he's saying. Rather, Jesus was using the law as a means to show this young man just how sinful he was. We know this, don't we? The Apostle Paul states this in Romans 7, 7 to 12. In fact, let me just read verse 7, Romans 7, 7. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the what? The law. He goes on to give an example. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It's like your wife buys Oreo cookies and leaves them in the thing and says, those are for us, but you can't have them. That's the rule. It's like, well, I really want them now more than ever. I want double the Oreo cookies than I ever wanted before because now I can't have them. 
that Chris really has a problem with Oreo cookies. See, God's word reveals just how sinful we really are. When you look into the, the mirror of God's word in comparison to your life, what do you see? How we do not measure up to God's perfect standard. And what is God's perfect standard? What does Matthew 5.48 say? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your neighbor, little brother. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely saved if it's my little brother because he's the worst. What is it? You shall be perfect as what? Your heavenly Father is perfect. And in fact, what does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fallen short. We miss the mark. You recognize that, right? You don't set the standard for what is good. God sets the standard for what is good. In fact, who is the standard? He doesn't just set the standard. God is the standard. It's an amazing thought. And we fall short. See, the law is good because it shows us that we could never perfectly keep it on our own. No amount of good works will ever make us good enough. The law should drive us to Christ. And when we repent, when we put our faith alone in Him, He gives us His righteousness. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. Jesus takes our punishment on the cross. He pays for our sin and he gives us his perfect goodness. What an amazing thought. Well, did this rich young ruler get it? When confronted and challenged with the law? Was there any possible way that this wretched young ruler had kept all of these commands perfectly? Well, we've seen the concern. We've seen the challenge. Now let's look at the contradiction in verse 20. Notice his contradicting response. And he said to him, teacher, I guess he lost the good part. <laughs> Got the hint. Teacher, I have kept how many? All these things from my youth up. He is essentially saying that from the time of his bar mitzvah, which is basically 12 to 13 years of age, he has perfectly kept the law. We have any 12 to 13-year-olds in here? Yeah? What are you? Oh, there we go. Okay, there's a few in the back. Do you, are, are you able to perfectly keep the law of your mom and your dad just one day? What, no, just one day. One, one day? Okay, one hour. One, one hour? Okay, yeah. What is he saying? From the age of 12 or 13, I've kept it all. You're welcome. It's amazing. From his perspective, as a religious community leader, he believed he had kept it perfectly. And again, don't miss this. This is where historical context helps us. According to first century Judaism, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. When you had money, it was because you were good and God was blessing you. You were obedient. God blesses the righteous. That's what he was taught. That's what he believed. He believed he had never murdered. He, he believed he had never committed adultery or stolen or lied or cheated or dishonored his parents. He was good and he had all of the material blessings to prove it. 
I guess he did not know the Psalter, and he had forgotten Psalm 14, verse 3, which says, There is no one who does good, not even one. His own self-assurance must have soared at hearing Jesus' answer regarding the law. I can just imagine what he was thinking as he gave his answer. I've kept it all, Lord. See, Jesus, I am good. I've done good all my life. I'm not like all those other sinners. In fact, I'm so much better than them. You see, Jesus? Them? Me? Huh? I can't even get low enough. Them? Me? Do you want to pat me on the back now or should I? I mean... Pin the ribbon upon his chest. And he might have been right. If God was only concerned about his external behavior and not his heart. One angry thought toward his brother, and he's a what, according to Matthew 5, 22. Get angry with your brother? It's like you murder him. One lustful thought toward his neighbor, that woman that lives next door, and he's a what? An adulterer. One cent less than he promised to give in his tithe. And what is he? A thief. So on it goes. In fact, his very answer was a delusional contradiction. He was deceived. He was delusional to think that his answer was true. Now, hearing this, I would expect Jesus to strongly rebuke him. Liar! Now, some of you need a little wake-up call. <laughs> this is the splash zone. <laughs> Liar! You're not good. But Jesus responds in love in verse 21. We've seen this rich young ruler's concern. We've seen Jesus' challenge. We've seen... The rich young ruler's contradiction, and forth we see the command in verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have what? Treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Looking at him, Kneeling in the dirt, probably could still see his white spindly legs. Jesus feels what? Love, not condemnation. Jesus is so patient, so kind, so genuinely concerned about the self-confident, self-assured, proud young man who is on his way to hell. Do patience, grace, And love characterize the way that you and I strive to build evangelistic relationships with the lost? Do they characterize the way that we pray for the lost? Does it characterize the way that we strive to share the gospel with the lost who are on their road to hell? Are we so quick to rebuke them when they're wrong, to write them off, to give up? Not Jesus. Notice what he says to continue to try to help this rich young ruler come to the sobering reality of his condition before a holy and good God. What does he say? One thing you lack. 
Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Draw near to me. Just like those little children did. Draw near. Now let me begin by clearly stating Jesus was not making a biblical case for giving up all wealth and living a life of denial. He's not asking you to be a monk. He's not asking you to sell your truck or give it to me. I don't have a truck. Always wanted a truck. But that's not what he's saying. And go buy a Pinto. Anyone had a Pinto from the 70s? Yeah. Oh, you had a Pinto? My wife had a Pinto. Who are you? Have we met? You're like, I eat Pintos. Is that the same thing? No. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us to be a monk. He's certainly not recommending poverty for all of his believers because as we know, poverty does not deliver anyone from the love of what? Money. Even those who are poor still want more. Rather, Jesus was using money to reveal the temporary hollowness of earthly things and to show the dangers of setting our heart on anything other than Christ. So why did Jesus command this rich young ruler to give up all of his earthly possessions? Was Jesus giving him his wish, that one final great deed by which he could be saved? Answer, no. Jesus gives this command because Jesus knew that one thing was lacking, true faith in a living God. Who was his God? We've seen the concern, the challenge, the contradiction. We've seen the command. And fifth, lastly, we see the conclusion. Notice his concluding response in verse 22. Remember, keep that question. Who was his God? Verse 22, looking at him. Oh, excuse me, verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He was saddened, literally has the idea of his face fell, his countenance dropped. Have you ever had one of those really, really good days? You feel like you're in one of those Disney movies, like the birds are talking to you, like the, hello, bluebird. Hey, Chris. The little squirrels are dancing around you, singing, and the bear's not eating them. I'm like, oh, this is great. Hello, Mary Poppins, so nice to see you. Rainbows and puppy dogs. I mean, it's like this, could this day get any better? man, this is a good day. And then someone delivers bad news and it's like kicks you in the gut. Ugh! And what happens? It's like the wind out of your sails. You ever had that happen? He was saddened. His countenance dropped. And not only that, what is he? He's grieving. Think about this. Jesus tells him these words, the minute he hears them, he was devastated. He's devastated. Let me just stop and make a point. It's important for us to think about. It is often true that most things that devastate us help reveal idols of our heart. When you ever think or feel This is devastating. Be on guard. 
Because God is probably using that circumstance, that person, stripping things away, that you what? Love more than him. Be on guard. This was devastating news. And instead of a rainbow, literally what comes? A cloud. He's like one of those Peanuts characters that walks around, the little cloud follows him. Woe is me. Sad. He's grieving. He's overcome with sadness and grieving. Why? Because the thought of giving up his earthly kingdom for a heavenly one was too much to bear. Instead of willingly abandoning the temporary earthly things that he loved the most, his money, his power, his prestige, his position, his possessions, and joyfully following Christ and receiving what? What did Jesus promise? You give up this earthly stuff and what do you get? Treasure in heaven. His countenance fell. And instead of drawing near to Christ, what does he do? He walks away grieving. Who was his God? Answer? Money. Money, money, money. Money. I should make a song out of that. Money was his God. He trusted it. He worshipped it. He received satisfaction in life from it. He thought he possessed money, but in fact, money possessed him. Money ruled this rich young ruler. The ruler becomes ruled. Money, all the prestige that it brought, all the achievements that it brought, his wealth, his position, how sad. And like Reynold III, he was a prisoner of his own appetite. Not for food, but in this case, wealth, position, power, a prison of his own making. And just like Reynold, it was a path to destruction. How do we know for sure that money was his God? Well, Jesus continues. He gives them an education on the poverty of riches. Uh, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but I do want to read it at least for us. Notice what Jesus, this is like a teachable moment, talking about the poverty of riches, the dangers of wealth. Notice in verse 23, Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words because, again, what did they heard? Rich people are blessed by God. Jesus is saying what? If you have money, it's going to be hard to go to heaven. Disciples were amazed at his words in verse 24, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now he's not just the wealthy. Now it's what? All of us, the children, all of us. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? I love this. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is what? It's impossible with people. But with God, what? All things are possible. You think you're good enough? You think you can get to heaven on your own through your own achievement, your baptism, your prayer that you prayed, your good works, the fact that you do good things and you're better than other people? Jesus says what? It's impossible. The only way you can be good is if you get it from Jesus. Jesus' warning is that for those who make wealth their God, they will forfeit the kingdom of heaven. For those who make anything or anyone their God, they will forfeit the kingdom of heaven. 
And that's why he says, just as it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, so too is it impossible for a person who loves money to go to heaven. Three reasons why it is so difficult for the wealthy, including this rich young ruler, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Just really quickly, number one, they have a false sense of security. Why is it hard for the rich to go to heaven? They have a false sense of security. They're self-dependent, not God-dependent. Again, 1 Timothy 6, 17. I love this passage. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Paul's telling Timothy, instruct rich people to what? Don't be conceited. You know what another word for conceited is? Arrogant. Why are rich people arrogant? Because when they look at their houses and their cars and their kingdoms and all the, the, the name that they put on the side of that building and everything they've achieved, what is the temptation? Look what I did. I did this. You know what I call that? Nebuchadnezzarism. Try saying that 10 times fast. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, we should, make, we should put that in the diagnostic statistic manual. That'd be like the new disorder. Oh, you have that Nebuchadnezzarism disorder. Nebuchadnezzarism disorder. That's what you have. Can you picture Nebuchadnezzar sitting on the, uh, on the balcony looking at his kingdom? And what does he say? Look what I did. Aren't I grand? I did all this. I own it all. And then God turns him into a cow. Talk about humility. You see, when you have money, who do you not need? God. This is radically different from the childlike faith needed for true salvation, not self-dependence, but what? God-dependence. So they have a false sense of security. They think they got it, they earned it, and they think it's going to make them happy. They think it's going to save them. Secondly, they're consumed by the things of this world. They're consumed by the things of this world, not Christ, not the treasure in heaven that Jesus promised in verse 21. How do we know that? Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Don't treasure up treasures on earth because it's not going to last and people are going to steal it. But what? Treasure up treasures where? In heaven. Why? Because it's never going to get stolen. It's never going to rust. And then verse 21, where your heart is there, or where, what? How did that go? I was checking to see if you're still paying attention. Where your heart is there, where your treasure is, you're trying to trick me. Marilyn, was that you? Where your treasure is there, will your heart be also, meaning what? Whatever you love, wherever your heart is, that's what you treasure. Whatever you love, that's, that's what you're pursuing. So whatever happens to your treasure happens to you. In fact, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. They have a false sense of security. They're consumed by the things of this world. But thirdly, they they selfishly pursue self-gratification. This is for me. This is to make me happy. It's not about satisfaction in Christ. Again, what does this say? Longing. They long for it. They love money. So what do they wander away from? They're walking away from the faith, from Christ, from the love of Jesus Christ. They're not grateful for God who richly supplied all those things to enjoy. They want more. And they bring only grief and pain. 
You see, they may be first on earth, but they're going to be last for all of eternity. They may be rich on this earth, but they will be heavenly paupers. This is the poverty of riches. It's a real danger. It's the love of money. You see, Jesus is not setting up more rules for this man to follow so he could achieve goodness and achieve salvation. Again, how do we know that? Because verse 27, it's impossible. You're not good enough. You can't save yourself. He's using this command as a means of exposing the idols of this rich young ruler's heart. In fact, until Jesus gave this command, I think he was blind to this. He didn't see it. Before he could receive the good news of the gospel, what did he have to come to grips with? What comes before the good news? The bad news. That's why he preached the law and not the gospel. He didn't preach the good news. He preached the bad news. Because until you and I come to grips with the fact that we are sinners who have rejected God and are trying to save ourselves, you will not be ready to receive the fact of who Christ is and what he did for you. And Jesus knows this. He had to recognize the truth of the bad news, that he was a sinner. He idolized money and possessions, and no amount of good works could ever save him. In spite of how good he thought he was, how religious he was, how obedient to the law he thought he was, he was not good because he was unwilling to put who first. Jesus said, draw near to me, follow me. And what does he do? Walks away. This was the most loving thing Jesus could have said. And sadly, this young man was unwilling to put Christ first. So you know what he does? He clings to his earthly God and rejects the God of heaven. Sad conclusion indeed. And it should not surprise us because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other or you're going to be devoted to one and what? Despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't. Matthew 6, 24. You and I will either selfishly pursue this world and all of its pleasures, or we will draw near to Christ to taste and see just how good he is. Because as Jesus reminds Peter and his disciples in verses 28 to 31, there is great reward in following Christ. And not just reward, but what? Eternal life. Isn't it interesting? He came, the rich young ruler came seeking eternal life. Through his own goodness, Peter says, well, what about us? And Jesus says, you know what? You gave up everything. I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to take care of you. And more than anything, someday you will be in heaven with me for all of eternity. It's an amazing thought. The question I have for you tonight is this. Will you draw near to Christ? Will you taste and see that the Lord alone is good? If you want to save your life, you must lose it. As you deny the love of self and follow Jesus. And this rich young ruler seemed to be sincerely seeking eternal life, but instead, what did he do? He forfeited his eternal soul forever for the love of self and the love of money. Because let's face it, when you put money and possessions and power and prestige first, who are you really loving? What do all those things do for you? 
It's about how they make you feel. It's about what you can, can get. It's about the cars and the money and the vacation. and the. It's about you. I pray that this would never happen to you. Like Reynold III, like this rich young ruler, are you a prisoner of your own lusts, of your own appetites, your own desires? It might not be food tonight. It might not be money or Uri cookies like obviously apparently I have a problem with. But you know what it might be tonight? It might be someone. It might be something that is your everything. Tonight, Christ has helped us see the tragedy of living a life, even a relatively what? Good one, that is not focused on wholeheartedly loving and following Christ. So my prayer for us is that we all would draw near to Christ through repentance and faith with everything we have and everything we are. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I am grateful for the clarity of this text for the sobering reminder that there is nothing on this earth that is good, that you alone are good. And in fact, because of your goodness, you sent your son to die for us, to do what we could never do, what was impossible on our own. That for any who might turn from their sin, recognize their, their, they are a sinner in need of a savior, that they would repent and turn and put their trust and faith Christ died on the cross and rose again on the third day, that they can draw near to you through Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that is being tempted or has already given in, they love this world. They love money. They love wealth or prestige or power or whatever it is, Lord God. Would you show them the hollowness of that, even as we heard from Jeannie's testimony? Religion can't save us. Money can't save us. Only Christ can. Would you do in their heart what only you can do? And for those of us who are following Christ, Lord, whether we have money or not, we don't want to put anything there first but you. So help us just to be aware and to learn the lesson, the dangers of wealth in the world. Because we know what we are living for. It's to see Christ. It's to have that eternal life. And someday we will receive a reward which will never fade away. So until that day, Lord, be pleased in our life as we live for you. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.